I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I sure have been looking for today's conversation. My guest is a comedian, actor. She's a woman aid ambassador, and she is the author of a very, very, very interesting book, How to Leave Your Psychopath, which I have to say makes me laugh because in the title of the book, there's the assumption that we all have encountered at least one psychopath in our life. Mandy Anholt has appeared in sitcoms and for the BBC Three, for the BBC One, for ITV, for Channel Four in the UK. She had four sell-out solo comedies at the Underbelly, Gilded Balloon, Latitude Festival, Main Stage, and the Soho Theatre. Her show, herself, was nominated the best new show at the Leicester Comedy Festival. Maddie also wrote and starred in her own shows in the BBC and in Radio 4 and has been viewed more than 7 million times online for her sketches. So if you know the work of Maddie, you know how funny she is. But mainly today, I'm very interested in discussing psychopaths. I think you'll enjoy this as much as I do. Maddie, it is wonderful to have you with me because I I don't live in the UK anymore. I did live for a year and a bit, but I also don't watch TV. And then I started to learn about you because we're meeting. Is there anything you don't do? Like just as a, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in what respect? Because <laughs> you act, you're a comedian. You are, I, I saw you rapping the other day. Yeah. Oh my God. You went really deep in there. Yeah. Uh, I did a lot of character comedy. I started, I trained as an actress 11 years ago now. And then um, from there, I just fell into comedy. I just started doing comedy. So I did a lot of stand-up. I did five one-woman shows. And then from there, I was just writing my fifth one-woman show and the pandemic hit. So I thought, well, I just booked a big stand-up tour and I just got some really good funding to do this tour. And I've done so much research <laughs> on the subject, which we're going to speak about. <laughs> and, um, and then the pandemic hit. So I decided, well, what if I maybe just tried to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> Recycled that knowledge somehow. It's like it's sitting yeah. there in my head and annoying me. I need to do something with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it worked. Uh-huh. And um, yeah. Your book is not out of personal experience. It's out of research. No, it's personal experience, I'm afraid to say. it's uh, Well, it's both. It's both. It's personal experience and research. So, yeah, How to Leave Your Psychopath, uh, the essential <laughs> handbook to escaping toxic relationships. Very much my life for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. And, um, yeah, funnily enough, actually, this is crazy that we're doing this podcast at all because... You did a, I'm being really good at not fangirling, by the way, here, because Mo, you did a couple of podcasts that I heard you on when I was coming out the depths of these 
toxic relationships and someone sent it to me and they said oh you've got to listen to this guy guy mo on this podcast yeah talking about soul for happy is all of this is a solution to happiness and i was like oh anything please (laughs) (laughs) please i was consuming you know like self-development books in the hope something would work (laughs) and um i just finished your book soul for happy and um it was had such an impact on me and the day I finished the book, I turned the back cover and I looked and I said, oh, it's Bluebird, the publisher's an imprint of oh, Pan Macmillan. Yeah. An hour later, no joke, an hour later, my phone rang. It was my literary agent. She said, you've got a book deal with Bluebird, Pan Macmillan. No way. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh, look, talk about manifestation. Right. Right. Look at that. And yeah. Carol, Carol is amazing. Oh, isn't incredible. She? Yeah. Incredible. She's magic, really. I mean, yeah. honestly, and, and I say that on the record, I don't think my books would have been the same without her, honestly, at all. Carol is our publisher here, so Penn Macmillan, and she's very uh, spiritual, very quiet, very calm. But oh my God, what she does to books. <laughs> it's like she's really talented at this. You know, I got an, another literary agent when it was announced, the book deal was announced emailed me and said, wow, you're with Bluebird, with Carol. Everything she touches turns to gold, was the line, right? And I was like, oh, well, we'll see. Oh, no, I do see. (laughs) You do realize I'm probably her worst book ever. No, why? What did you say? I'm absolutely, I mean, like she always gets like million copies sold and stuff like that. Don't know, because mine's not out yet. That's so much pressure. (laughs) (laughs) You'll do absolutely fine. Look, you've touched on the topic that I think every one of us experienced without noticing they're experiencing it. I mean, do you want to start by sharing psychopath stories? Like, (laughs) (laughs) how long have you got, Mo? (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's go. Let's go. What, you know, what was your worst story? (laughs) Wow. You'll see. So in the book, I, uh, I track my relationship history, essentially. And what I talk about, the point, one of the points I'm making in the book is that if you don't address what's happening to you when you're going through these relationships, and I'm not just talking about a bad relationship. I'm not talking about they don't text you back, they leave you unread, they don't hang up the bath mat, they flirt with your best friend. I'm not... I'm not talking oh, about these that. These are not the psychopaths you're talking oh, about. Oh no, okay? I'm talking about some. I'm talking about those people who not only infiltrate your lives, they destroy, they annihilate everything that you are. They take your self-esteem and they crush it for fun. These are the people I'm talking about, right? And so, who have you been mixing with? Oh well, not anymore, Mo. I just stay by myself. And I'm <laughs> So my point in the book is that when you don't stop, which I didn't because I have learned subsequently, I was entirely codependent and terrified of being alone, which I hold my hands up to. I was just jumping from relationship to relationship. I mean, really, honestly, I think the the longest I had between relationships in a decade was 12 days. You know? No way. And that's probably because I had a flu or something, not, not from 12 years. <laughs> Not my choice. <laughs> <laughs> Not my choice. I was just probably a little bit sick. And that's what I kept doing. And God, I, I'd, I'd say to myself, is it me? <laughs> you know, is it me that I keep attracting? Why do I, I mean, I am every, like, I'm decimated with every one of these relationships. And they got worse and they got worse and they got worse until the kind of the final hurrah 
in the book, I talk about, you know, the final one that really was seven years and it was just really just took everything from me. And then when I finally kind of tumbled out of this, it was this very clear decision in my head that I made, which was never again. I'd rather be alone and happy than in a shitty relationship and miserable. And that was the choice. And then after a time, after a lot of therapy, after a lot of working with some experts, I thought, well, hold on. There's more to it than just I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. I'm going to be miserable or being miserable and being in these relationships. There's more to it. And then I began learning, and I mean really learning, about these people, narcissists and psychopaths. And people on, in my book, I have a psychometer, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> a, a scale from, from, I guess you'd call it a compassionate person or an empath, whatever terminology you like to use, all the way up to extreme psychopath on the other end. And I talk about the fact that anyone is vulnerable to a psychopath anyone I mean even other psychopaths and perhaps we'll get into what I mean when I'm I say psychopath because you can have obviously like learned psychopathic behavior to be quite honest which most of us do and have done in our lives at some point but I'm talking about those with quite literally different wiring in their brains and if you are on the lower end of the scale if you are a person who is a fixer like I'm great at fixing other people if you're slightly codependent, if you are terrified of being alone, if you just think the best of people in a rather naive way, then it is quite easy for you to blindly go into one of these relationships and just hope that it will keep getting better. And so that's which really what I talk about. Yeah, which it never does. And so this is a book that from a comedian, but it's also from someone who's been through it. So it's... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I say to people, it's funny. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, true, the biggest lessons in life truly are a comedy. I mean, you look back at them and you almost laugh. Like, how did I do that? Isn't, you know, it's like, this is a good show. If someone sees it, they'll laugh with me. It's. Uh, I mean, it's this is what we're doing. We're pushing it for TV for comedy now. It would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what defines a psychopath? I mean, there are, of course, the sort of like the textbook definitions of someone who's unable to relate to others and so on. But in your definition, what's a psychopath? Yeah, sure. I mean, you could go down the list, Dr. Robert Hare's list, and tick off the 12 traits and talk about someone being glib or superficial. Or, But, you know, this is the point. It's funny that you use the word textbook there. This is the point. This is why I wrote the book, because everything is too textbook. It's all clinical. And when something is clinical and textbook, it's removed from us. It's, it's far away. I mean, you know, from your try and bring some personality, some amiability to what you're doing so that people understand it and people can relate to it. But when you are talking about a psychopath, when I'm talking about a psychopath, truly, whether it's genetic, whether it's learned, whatever, I am talking about the people who have little to no empathy. I'm talking about the people whose sole aim is to find people to destroy. I'm talking about people, the difference between really, there are many differences between a narcissist and a psychopath, and often this just so overlapping. And in fact, in my book, I came up with my own term because I was working with brilliant minds and they were saying, oh, well, no, hold on, it's sociopath. 
And then I would talk to someone else and they'd go, no, well, it's not. It's, she's talking about a psychopath. And someone else would say, no, I would say that's a narcissist. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> we're trying to make it not clinical. <laughs> and so I came up with my own term. And the term I use is controls. So like a con and then trolls, like they troll your life. So I <laughs> come up with this term and I call controlling personality types controls because it's the term for the lay person. It's not clinical, it's not remote, it's not in a textbook somewhere. These are people whose sole aim is to watch you crumble. So deliberately, so this is not, let me start by sharing my biggest psychopath story. I Please. hope she's listening. <laughs> no, this is, this completely destroyed me, honestly. And I'm a happiness expert. I'm like, I'm chill. I'm like, you can't really dent my mindset, right? And she was a single mother. Our first two dates, she was so constantly complaining about how difficult it is to raise a child alone. And I raised two wonderful children, so I understand parenting. And But she clearly didn't want kids. Her child, I think, was 12 and about to, she would say, a few more years and I'll be free again. And, you know, she was young in her 30s, so, you know, basically has a whole life ahead of her. And that's the entire premise of the connection was around children and the fact that she's struggling with it and so on. Anyway, it was Christmas time. We, we were together two weeks and then Christmas time, I travel. I normally go on a retreat last week of the year and first week of the next year. I come back. She says, I just had a miscarriage. And I said, that's, that can't be my child. We did not do what is needed for you to have a child so that you have a miscarriage. And she said, no, it's not yours. But she's calling me to console her on being with someone else to get a child when she's been telling me that she doesn't want children. Interestingly, it turns out she was not with someone else. She was with four other people trying her absolute best, telling each and every one of them the same story of, I don't like children, while her total objective was, I want a child. And I don't even want to ask you if you want one or not, because I'm just going to use your sperm and then I don't really want to see you again. I'm happy as a single mother. Now, that to me defines as the ultimate, I don't relate to your emotions. I don't care about what you are. I don't need to even tell you the truth. I want a child, so you're my donor, right? How far that is on the psych, psych psychometer? Meter. <laughs> psychometer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sole aim there, obviously. You said she would want to have used the sperm just to have the child and then never see you again. I'm not so sure of that. Uh, maybe not. I mean, clearly, by the way, because of losing Ali, I've never been ready to have a child ever again. I don't think I will ever again. That was very public in my conversations with her. And yeah, do you think that she was trying to lock me in? And like, Yeah, okay. I would imagine so. I mean, to me, that sounds like the ultimate way to control someone, right? I mean, the point I make throughout the book is that there's all different types of types of coercion. That's one of them, what you've just described there. That's a type of coercion. There's financial, there's sexual. When you're in a coercive relationship, it's quite often multiple types of coercion on top of one another. So you can be, for example, financially controlled. They can be eventually totally in charge of your bank balance or even just done in the most subtle of ways, as I describe in my book, which could be things like they will make you feel terrible about your financial situation. They will perhaps take you to a really flashy restaurant, knowing that you can't pay, making you feel uncomfortable, and then sitting there and watching you squirm when the bill comes and they refuse to pay. I mean, these are, these are tiny wow. things, but the point of all of them is to control, coerce, and to degrade. 
And then, of course, you've got the sexual degradation side of things, which is the worse you feel about yourself through sexual acts that I'm going to force onto you, the more it plays into the perpetrator's hands, right? Because I'm going to make you feel so disgusting about what I make you do that your self-esteem is lowered and lowered and lowered and lowered until eventually... You're talking real evil here. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is what the book... We had to tread so carefully with this book because we were having a conversation, Carol and I and everyone, and uh, they said, look, we need this like strap line, right? We need, it's called how to leave your psychopath. We need another little line just to like really serve up what we're doing. And you were saying, okay, maybe we should say how I escaped a narcissist or no, 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 it's too clinical. And then eventually we got to the essential handbook for escaping toxic relationships because we felt that that summarized so nicely from one end of the scale to the other, because there are people, and it's not just women, although it's a gendered crime, coercive control, you've just described the female encounter that you just had there. From each end of the scale, they're all the way up to femicide or or whatever that might be, all, all the way up there, down to someone who's had a really nasty run in with someone. And it scarred them a little bit and it's hurt them a little bit, but, and they've come out battered and bruised, but they've escaped and they've become a little survivor in their own way. <laughs> so that's why we kind of came up with that term. But I would, and that, that's why the scale, the psychometer is so useful, you know, because like you asked me, wh- where do you think that person sits? I mean, I would say she's probably, probably a seven or an eight. Oh, there is worse than this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, no, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm an amateur. Okay. I, should, I, mean, say, I don't want to use should... the word. <laughs> <laughs> You're a pro, it seems. I mean, should I go out there in the real world and be... Oh, but, I mean, in, in terms of theatre, you'd be doing amateur dramatics and I'd be like, you know, in the oh, Royal wow. Shakespeare Company. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Share one on your side. Like, how horrible can it be? I'm going to tell you... Uh, I'm going to pull one from my book and I'm going to try and make it at least palatable. <laughs> How many are in your book? Oh, so many. I mean, what, what I've done with my book is that every chapter is, is a combination. So it's memoir, so something that happened, and then science, I use that in inverted commas, and then analysis. <laughs> so it's like I'll do a chapter on, I have one called, why don't you just leave him? Classic line. It's a classic one when you're in a bad relationship. People will be like, just get out. And then I explain... Things why like the side. Well, why you can't? Because it's hormonal, right? It's chemical. It's actually chemical what's happening to us. Anyway, a story. Okay, I'm going to give you one that's. <laughs> I do detail this in my book. So I was with a guy and we'd been together for actually relatively quite a short time. And I'd not quite moved on yet to the, the kind of <laughs> the ultimate king of controls, as I call him in the book, which is the final, the final big, hard, <laughs> ultimate king of the psychopaths. So I hadn't quite moved on to him yet. And I was in this relationship and, yeah, it just didn't feel right. There was something that didn't feel right. But Mo, I'm a perfectionist. We had all microphone troubles before we started. I was not ready to start because I want everything to be perfect, you know. <laughs> and so I'm, I was like that in my relationships. I thought, well, just, just keep going. It's the fallacy of sunk cost. I just keep going. It's going to get better. The way I describe it is like if you're on the phone to, 
BT or something and you've been on hold for 46 minutes of your life, right? <laughs> you and might as well there. hold for another hour. I mean, it's already too right. expensive. <laughs> right. And you're like, well, if I hang up now, I've really lost those 46 minutes. <laughs> but if I keep going, it could solve my problems, right? There could be a solution, a light at the end of the tunnel. And I was like that with relationships. I'd go, well, it's already been six months. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy, he had basically controlled me in the way that he would make me feel awful about being a creative and being a kind of a freelancer. And he would say, you know, your head's in the clouds and you're never going to achieve what you want to achieve, but maybe not in those words, but things like if you want to have money to live in London, you're going to have to do a proper job. Okay. Things like that. And gradually over time, it made me really frustrated, but I did begin to think, well, maybe he's right. And you know, I've been doing this a decade, being a creative of every kind, as you say. So he then got me a job, which on the surface, you'd go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> But the job, I won't go into too much detail, but the job was, I'm trying not myself to sound like a narcissist here, but it was very much below me. I I was very overly skilled for this particular job. And it made me feel shit when I was doing it. And it also took up a lot of my time. It paid not very, I could have done things off my own back that would have paid more. But anyway, this went on and on and on until eventually I said, you know, let's just take a break. It was Christmas. I said, let's just take a break because... I need a bit of space. Christmas Day. (laughs) I'm sitting at home with my family, beautiful scene, you know, in the countryside, fire burning, and the little ones are playing, and my phone pings, and it's him. So I think, oh, you know, that's nice. I thought we were going to not talk for a couple of days, but okay, fine. He's probably just saying happy Christmas. (laughs) He sent me an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) An Excel spreadsheet of all of my costs of what I owed him, itemized, of all of the things I owed him. It was things like petrol, £22.50 on this date, noodles, £13.25 on this date. I mean, I mean, there were lists and lists and lists of all of my expenses. And essentially, the, the subliminal messaging of all of this was... What are you doing? Enjoy Christmas, get up and work. <laughs> Either you be quiet and get on with the job that I've given you that makes you feel crap and then you don't have to pay or if you choose to be bigger than me and defy me, essentially, then you pay me. And now I look back on that. In fact, when I put it in the book, I thought, this is hilarious. I think I called it the Christmas Day Excel spreadsheet, like the worst gift on earth. (laughs) And uh, when I was looking at it, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to pay this guy back and so when we were having a conversation about it I was talking to a friend she said you know you've got to pay him and I said but why I mean this is all stuff that for example we would be in the car I'd be sitting in his car and like if if you go for dinner with someone it's polite to say oh let me get this or let's split this or whatever and then whatever someone will say no it's fine I got this or, or if they can't do that they'll say yeah that'll be great let's split it or whatever it is So every time I'd said something along those words, so are you okay with this or do you need me to get this or something? He'd made a little note in his phone. Every time, and I'm talking like there was, I don't know, 60, 70 times. What was he, an accountant? 
And actually, no, he did work with numbers, but no. Okay. And <laughs> it was just a whole. Obviously, he would have a great career there. I mean, I mean, I should it. probably tell him I blocked him. <laughs> <laughs> I think he will know. I think he will know. <laughs> he will get it was the message. Quite, yeah, I mean, it was quite extraordinary that money in that way can be used to when you're already feeling at your lowest ebb and when you're already feel, like doubting and asking I call in my book I call her lady gut instinct when you're asking lady gut instinct is this right I'm just wondering I'm feeling a little bit something like my gut is telling me there's something a bit off that someone can use something like financial control to keep you pinioned in one place so that's mine right <laughs> In an interesting way, I, I think this really cuts to the core of the issue. The core of the issue is that let's not keep sharing stories because I think some of the people I'll talk about will be listening to this podcast. But anyway, I mean, the idea is that the people that sort of hurt you most or control you most don't come across as that at all. They come across as initially as wonderful people, extremely kind and sort of like a few weeks in you start to get that feeling of oh this something is off but i don't, can't see what it is it's he or she is wonderful in every other way and sometimes i felt they themselves were not aware of how unfair the way they are treating you is and other times they are fully aware but they don't think of it as wrong at all i mean this guy would have probably thought that he's doing you a favor somehow because he's so good with numbers and control freakishness doesn't end with yourself if you're a control freak you control yeah. everything right so how do you find out because if you're very suspicious then it seems that everyone has an issue that we probably couldn't stand I think, um, I, yeah, I know I agree with you. I mean, yeah, you were talking about there at the beginning of a relationship or seeing someone, of course, everyone is on their best behavior. It's generally a couple of months in or sometimes just a few weeks in that the facade slips. There's this thing, love bombing, which I'm sure you've heard about, which is the a great sign, a good red flag to look for, which is essentially when you're starting to date someone, they are maybe completely over the top. And saying things like, oh, you're everything I ever wanted. Let's get married. Let's move to Highgate. Let's have a load of children and we'll be whatever it is. And so you feel, unless they do it in such a way that you feel, wow, I mean, this is like fairy tale. You know, I use that word quite a lot in the book that it does feel almost Disney-like. And then very slowly you start going through this cycle of, you know, it's getting worse. And I think the thing that makes it different to, as you quite rightly were saying, that everybody has issues. Everyone, like, <laughs> in the most basic of ways, Mo, everyone's been a dick, right? <laughs> in, every, <laughs> in, in every relationship, everyone has been a dick. I mean, you know, multiple times. I'm moving on from that. And I'm talking about looking out for patterns and looking out for all cycles in relationships. So the cycle of abuse that I talk about in the book is that it quite often follows something along the lines of it will feel like you are treading on red hot coals. There's a tension, there's a, an unease in the air where you feel the other person may just flip and it makes you feel, you can feel it in your gut. Sometimes can actually make you sick. You get tummy problems and whatever, but you have this sense of like your shoulders being up around your ears and something's going to happen. 
And when you move out of that phase, invariably what happens is that cortisol going on, there's adrenaline, there's a, there's a, a fear, a fight or flight, something's going to happen. And then there's the big eruption. And when the big eruption happens, it's a, a huge argument. It's a shout in your face. It, does, it can be completely non-physical. Domestic abuse is not being punched in the face. That's part of it. But in every depiction I have seen recently of domestic abuse, it's a woman being punched in the face. And it irritates me because that is just one little layer of what's happening. So there'll be a huge big eruption and that person who's had all of the cortisol and the adrenaline and everything pumped in will be sort of left quivering and sort of wondering what the hell is next. And then the next phase comes along and the next phase is calm, it's reconciliation. And it's so nice, that phase. I mean, I've been through it many times. And then you get your dopamine and you get that sense of sorry without saying sorry. It will never happen again. It was just often gaslighting will be used and you'll feel like maybe it was my fault. Maybe I was paranoid. Maybe I should stop listening to that voice that tells me they're cheating and stop accusing them of things. And so there'll be this reconciliation and there'll be a calm and you'll go back to that lovely honeymoon phase and it's gorgeous and you, you've got all of those lovely love hormones happening and the chemicals and then very gradually you'll creep back round to the top of the circle and in come again these cortisol, this something is brewing. And it's difficult to put a timeline on that. You can't say, oh, this is every three months. You check your calendar, you make sure you're not in the house at that time. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's two weeks. Sometimes it's, it's longer. And for me, it was, that was a big recognition point for me. I kept saying to people, it's not bad all the time. That was like my go-to phrase. It's not always bad. He's lovely to me. We go out for lovely dinners. We have amazing times. You know, he's so intelligent and kind and it's not always bad until a good friend of mine said, but of course it's not always bad. Otherwise, you'd leave. And I'm like thinking about thinking. One of the things I say in my book is what you put up with at the end is not what you would have put up with at the beginning. You mean you become a lot more tolerant? You are so desensitized to what is happening. You normalize this behavior because remember, you get constant flashes of this gorgeous honeymoon phase. You see how caring they are. They love you, you think, in that time, and, they, and you keep coming back to that. But every time, all the way through this cycle of abuse, what's happening in that cycle each time is are things that we've mentioned. Financial control, sexual control, all different kinds of things that lower your self-esteem. It's like taking a hammer to a rock. You start crumbling and crumbling and getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And so every time those cycles repeats, you're a little less a version of yourself than you were at the beginning. So of course you stay. Of course you put up with more because the thought of leaving is a pain that you can't take right now because you're already feeling weak. So it is a lot easier to put a face up to the world and say, I'm fine. He's actually great. Most of the time it's fine. He just has a few blips, but who doesn't? That's easier than saying, I can't do this anymore. You are ruining me. And so that's the distinction, really, Mo. And it's so, so subtle. It's insidious, this abuse. It's so subtle. What is this distinction between just a plain nasty person and someone who's really out there to control you? And I would say it's that. 
this is so well framed. And I think a lot of people need to make that distinction. I think when you're saying it's every three weeks or every three months or whatever, for some people, I can picture that this would go on for years, like for a lifetime almost. And, and it's interesting because of the BP call center issue. The more time passes, the more you go like, but it's already been very expensive. I get a lot of people, whether fans or followers or readers or friends who will tell me, but also, you know what, I've invested in this. I've, I've put time and I don't know if I leave what else will come, right? I mean, I know a very, very dear friend who will say, but most men are like that. So I'm going to leave this one to take another one, but the other one will be like this one. And it's a very interesting cycle when you start to think about what's happening inside us. By the way, I, I should be very open about this. I, as a man as well, suffer from those. And I know a lot of my male friends, whether straight male or gay male, who suffer from that as well. Right? That's right. And it's quite interesting. It's the dynamic itself has no nothing to do with gender. It has the idea of one is trying to control the relationship and the other is trying to sort of make it easier if you want, make it work somehow. What would distinguish the difference between a relationship that's actually worth being in, worth investing in, worth fixing, and one that is eventually going to end up in a disaster? You're just waiting for it to happen and maximizing it. Well, it is a good question. I think fundamentally, one of the biggest things that I learned after I'd given a decade to these relationships was that these people can't change. And it's also not your job to change people because some people don't want to be changed. Some people are happy as they are. And so honestly, life is too short to stay in a relationship I don't care how old you are I don't care I mean I know I had to be very realistic in the book and I had to talk to people who had children who had been married for 40 years who had maybe not a penny to their name it's not easy to leave and to say oh life's too short I'm gonna go off and find someone else because you have nothing left you're a shell but hopefully before all of that happens if you are in a place where you either have been in an abusive relationship or a toxic relationship, whatever you want to call it, and you start dating again and you're chatting to someone and you there's a little alarm bell start ringing and there's just a few red flags. You basically, I think awareness is the key. I talk about the power of noticing in my book. And I think what happens when you're in a, in a relationship that's toxic is that that is stripped from you you stop taking the time to notice because your gaze goes from yourself and wondering how you are and checking in with yourself to them. One of the things I say in my book is a terrifying thing to come out of my mouth was, I'll only be happy when you are. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I know. Mom. I know. That's the worst. Right. I know, but that is... I've rarely heard worse than this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And um, it took me a lot to kind of put that in the book because that was at a point when I was like six years into this relationship and, you know, I was thin, so thin. I'd lost so much weight. I, I was sick, you know, really, genuinely, I was physically sick. It wasn't just a mental thing. I, I was really physically sick. And at the end of this, I remember thinking to myself, once I was out, because the point is that they, 
they will drum into you that you will always be alone without them. One of the things they'll say quite often is, you will never find anyone like me. Well, the truth is, great. I hope I don't. <laughs> Please. Thanks for the reminder, yeah. I mean, Please, yeah. The entire world is better than this. That's great. You know, yeah, I excellent. Take that. I, right. Take anyone. Who's next? <laughs> exactly. But at the time, you go, oh, my God, I can't leave this. I've got to stay. I've got to stay. So, I mean, there's not really a black and white answer I can give to, to that question. But I would say that taking into account gut instinct and, and intuition and your feelings of, ah, it's a little alarm bell. I would say utilize the power that you have to notice because you have that. And it is a power when you're not in that relationship. You can stop and you can look and you can listen to yourself and you can talk to your friends, people who genuinely care and say things like, they are lovely, but there's just this thing. There's just this thing that they did. And sometimes I talk in my book about negging. Now, the thing about this is like, it really comes from, in fact, I'm not, I was going to say the name of the book, but I don't even want to plug it. But it comes from, I'm not getting into incels, Mo, but this kind of category, let's say. And the point of it is to just really basically to make you feel worse about yourself. So there's all different kinds of negging. It, quite often, if someone is wanting to take you down a peg or two, the point is to ultimately to control you. And it's quite easy to say, oh, I was joking. Oh, come on. That was just a joke. So, you know, it could be things like, I'm so pleased you got that sports journalist job. You deserve it. It's so weird because you don't know anything about sports. You'd think that they would choose someone who did. Right? That's an example because you feel like, oh, uh, thank you. I, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not sure. Or um, it would be like, I had this once on a date. <laughs> and I had the guy, he said, um, he said, oh, you're a comedian. I said, yeah. He went, wow. I mean, good on you. That's so brave. But what an unattractive job for a female to have. <laughs> mm, wow. <laughs> and I thought, that is, I've never heard that one before. Why? I mean, what I didn't at the time. I mean, I went, uh, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> but they, they come in all forms. It would be things like, wow, you're wearing that dress. I mean, it looks great, but I thought you didn't like your arms. You're showing them, oh you know, things like that. God. And I'm giving obvious examples, but sometimes they're not so obvious. Whatever it is that makes you have that little squeeze in your tummy that goes, oh, God, I feel like I've someone's punched me a little bit. Like that hurt. These are really early indicators, red flags for something's not right. Pay attention. You've got your love bombing, your negging. There's all, these are all red flags to pay attention. Here's a line to listen to if they, they can't say enough positive things about you. But then they say things like, uh, my ex was crazy. She was insane. And this is a difficult one because obviously I've just written a book about how crazy mine were. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say things like mine were all so paranoid, you know, they were always so paranoid. Well, often there's a reason why you will soon become that paranoid X is likely. And that's, yeah. So there's a, all sorts of red flags to look for. You see, for me specifically, I think the, I think the red flags, interestingly, are always clear in hindsight. When you look back, you go like, wow. What took me so long 
to internalize this. You notice it. You notice it the first minute it happens. But then you sort of always are on the optimistic side, looking for excuses, telling yourself you haven't seen what you have seen, or maybe he meant it or she meant it differently, or this or that and the other. And I've actually struggled for a very long time. I had a loving, loving, loving like marriage for 22 years with a wonderful woman, Nibel, who we were together for five, six years before. And it was just a, a mega love story, right? And then I, I leave that love story dating really like a 14-year-old, honestly, have no idea what I'm doing. And I constantly compare everyone to Nibel saying, look, their Nibel is going to come out. Eventually, I'm going to find the Nibel in them, right? And I, for a while, I ended up saying, that's it. I'm, I really, maybe I'm not made for this. Until I started to recognize that the issue is that we put in so much time in relationships that are clearly not going to work. They don't have to be a psychopath, by the way. They could be wonderful people, but even the simple compatibility issues, right? We let it linger to the point where you're unable to just put your foot down. And in the last year or so, I started to be very clear about that tingling feeling of something is not right. And when I get that feeling, I sit down quietly, alone, and write. I mean, I write all the time anyway, but I write very specifically, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? What are the, the events that triggered that feeling? What kind of conversation should I have with her about that feeling, right? Openly saying, look, when those events happened, I didn't feel good about it. Explain to me, and more interestingly, tell me if that's something that's going to happen again. And I think that kind of communication is the least we owe ourselves because you know what, as you rightly said, doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, why waste a year of your life or a couple of weeks of your life even in, in a relationship that's going to tax you and not, and not benefit you. And so, so the question here is, okay, so you recognize this, you jump out. Honestly, the most crucial question, what happens after? Are you still at the 12 day thing or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> There's a line out there, Mo. I mean, I've got to wrap this up. I have you? absolutely no doubt. Can I, can I stand in line if you don't mind? I mean, if I can get a. It's huge. It's around the block, but join it. <laughs> Just quickly going back on that. <laughs> no, because there is a happy ending. There is. Quickly going back on that, which is great. You know what you're talking about there. And in terms of taking that time to sit and write and just wonder, really. And I think it's just that quick switch in your head. It's the switch from, do I like them? To how do they make me feel about exactly. myself? Yeah. And when I switched that, and it was so subtle, in fact, I didn't even consciously do it. I think it was because I had taken the time, which is so fundamental, which people I didn't do before. I had taken the time to understand what it was that I was looking for. And I had, uh, I Absolutely. created a PPC, I call it in the book, it's a potential partner checklist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, they're going to be this tool and have this and do this job or whatever. It was none of that. It was things like, yeah. I want them to be empathetic. I want them to be kind. There's all sorts of things like this. Absolutely. I have a list of seven things. Okay. And it's exactly seven things. It doesn't include any physical attributes. It doesn't include any job descriptions, any passions in life, any hobbies that we share. It's all about 
attributes of what makes a good human, really. Yes. You know, what you're looking for is not in those other things that were sold. Absolutely spot That's on. That's it, because I will put my hands up and say that when previously I had been looking for, I would say, oh, you know, I work in a kind of unique field. It's, it's not nine to five. I can be writing until three in the morning or filming or whatever. So... I would struggle to date someone who did the nine to five. That I mean, I've just wiped out there like 80% of the population. <laughs> exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was my huge thing. I would go, oh no, no, I can't do that. And I was, it was like I was putting obstacles up. And uh, probably because I was quite fearful actually, because I was mistrustful. I, I didn't trust men anymore. Once I'd taken the time to myself and I'd, I'd been kind and compassionate to myself, but I'd also worked on this idea of, taking accountability it's not about blaming I did not blame myself it's no one's fault that they are in a coercive relationship at all but there is some strength to be found in taking accountability for why and that was a really hard pill to swallow because I had a one of my first crisis counsellors when I, I sort of tumbled out at this really dark stage in my life she, she was really she was a very stern woman and she said to me Really bluntly, you know, I was like a shaking wreck. She said, ah, you're addicted to drama. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, all right. wow. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. And so we started to break that down. And that's when we introduced the conversation about codependency and so on. And then I really did begin to realize, oh, I am not ready to date. And this is, you know, years and years ago now. But I said, oh, I'm not ready. I'm going to stop. Because I would find myself, I would get a dating app. And I would load it up and I would fill out my profile. I'd do two days, swipe, swipe, swipe. Oh, no, I can't do this. I'd delete it again. A week later, it would be on my phone. I mean, it was like as bad as Instagram. You just constantly, no. it was just another thing. It was another Nothing thing. Nothing is as bad as Instagram. No, don't say no. that more. Than <laughs> <laughs> and so eventually, I hated all the things that people say. Oh, when you stop looking, they find you, you know, all this crap. Uh, or like, oh, when you love yourself. Yes, I know. I know when I love myself. They, <laughs> I know all of this. But actually what happened then was I genuinely stopped looking for the person that I had been. And I just let myself be. And then I did meet my partner. And he was like nothing that I'd ever dated before. I'd never been with someone and then I realized one week or two weeks in, I was like, no, maybe it was a couple of months, actually. I realized, wow, there doesn't need to be this like up, down, up, down, up, down. That's exhausting. There doesn't need to be constant fights or this, that tension that I was talking about where the air is thick with it, where you feel sick walking into a room. There doesn't need to be that paranoia of why do they keep hiding their phone? Why do they keep leaving when they need to have a conversation and making sure that I can't hear? Why is that? Why are they so secretive? And there doesn't need to be any of that. Actually, when you find a love, when they meet you where you are and you meet them where they are, yes, there's a, an element of that's annoying about them and this is annoying about me, but it's nothing that where there's so much friction that it makes you feel ill. Actually, there can be a love and there can be a relationship that evolves on a daily, hourly basis where it's based on a foundation of calm and compassion and it's just easy. And that exists. It does exist. And I'm not making it Disney and I'm not going, if there's someone out there for everyone, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that 
eventually when you stop focusing on other people and you focus on yourself and give yourself the compassion that you deserve, the kindness, the empathy that you keep giving to other people, you keep trying to serve other people, but you've got to serve yourself, then a remarkable thing happens and you get to be with the person that meets you where you are. And that's, that's what happened. I think yeah. we, should, we absolutely should end right here. Mm -hmm. This is truly, I think, the summary the, the distilled wisdom of all of this. I think you said three things. One is easy exists. So dream of easy. Don't dream of white horses and tropical islands. Dream of easy. I love the idea of self-love and self-compassion. Honestly and truly, I think we all struggle with that. The idea of I have to sacrifice a little. I have to push myself a little for love. No, that doesn't have to be this way. As a matter of fact, love should enable you to, to be who you are. And I think the true, true, true wisdom that I will repeat forever when anyone asks me is, if you are not yourself, you're advertising the wrong energy and accordingly attracting the wrong person. And a lot of people, especially on the feminine side, or people who maybe are not so confident of themselves, or people who are constantly need self-reassurance, if you want. I say the feminine side because of the biological clock pressure, which basically is like, I have to move. It doesn't matter who he is, but I have to move, which unfortunately is a reality of our life. And I think when you're in that space and you sort of show out in the world as someone who you're not, what ends up happening is that someone who likes that image you're broadcasting, who doesn't like the real you, he likes the image that you're broadcasting or she, and eventually you end up with the wrong person. What you want is to say, thank God that 97% of the world doesn't like the image that I'm broadcasting because I need one of the 3%. I need a person that fits me where I am. I think this book will be an amazing read. It's gonna be funny like hell. Uh, it's going to be, <laughs> and I definitely am waiting to be one of the first readers and I, uh, it's out in February. So in a couple of weeks, so by the time we publish, it's probably going to be out this episode. I'd urge you to go and upgrade your understanding of toxic relationships yeah. and psychopaths. <laughs> and uh, Maddie, I'm really, really grateful for your openness, for your fun way of sharing this amazingly interesting topic and very, very important topic. And thank you for coming to Slow Mo. Thank you so much, Mo. Yeah, and for all of you listening, I am absolutely certain you enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm actually quite intrigued to hear about your own psychopath stories. So find me and Maddie on Instagram and share it with us and tell us how you got out and tell others that you're never going to be with a psychopath again. I will repeat what I said. I think, interestingly, the easiest way out of being in a toxic relationship is a tiny bit of time to slow down because when you're inside the relationship, you don't see it objectively. So do what I and Maddie do and basically take some time to slow down, to reflect, to understand how you feel, to understand why you're feeling this way. And don't stick around because it's much worse to stay another hour waiting on that call center call, suffering than to waste the 46 minutes that passed. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.